And we have gone as far as to look at uh, verses 9 and 10. We now come along to uh, verse 11. And here we come to Demetrius, the third person in 3 John. Remember now, 3 John, three persons. We got Gaius, Diotrephes, and Demetrius. We're now out of the swamp. We're going up to the second mountain peak. Here's another extraordinary man of God. We know nothing again about Demetrius except, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> except what we learn of him right here in this letter. Now, what we're told in verse 11, Dear friend, don't imitate evil, but imitate good. The one who does good is from God. The one who does evil hasn't seen God. Demetrius has a good testimony from everyone, even from the truth itself. We also give testimony to him, and you know that our testimony is true. This, which we are told, is again an amazing statement about a man. We know very little of Demetrius, but what we know is astounding. This man becomes, in the eyes of those to whom John is writing, uh, Gaius and his party of people who have been thrown out of the church by Diotrephes, he becomes the example to follow. Notice, it says, don't imitate evil, but imitate good. Now, uh, it's interesting to notice how John puts it. He doesn't say, if you happen, decide, uh, happen to decide to imitate someone, imitate what's good, not what's evil. He doesn't say that at all. He presupposes they will imitate someone. Notice that. He doesn't say, if you ever happen to do it, do it this way. But he just says, imitate what is good, not what is evil. Because he knows that all of us follow the example of others. Now, following someone's example is not necessarily bad. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, for example, Paul says this, Be imitators of me. We're commanded by Paul, really by the Spirit of God through Paul, to imitate Paul. So it's not wrong to imitate another person. And of course John says, imitate what's good, and he means as it's personified in those who do good. Now, there is a limitation, however, that Paul puts upon imitation, which we should keep in mind in this verse in 2 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I don't think he means there, be imitators of me, uh, namely in that I do imitate Christ. Uh, since I imitate him, you should imitate too. But I think what he's saying rather is this, wherever you see me doing something that is like Christ imitate me. Well, then why shouldn't we just imitate Christ? Why not just bypass Paul? Why not just go straight to the fountainhead? 
Well, that's an interesting question. It's the same kind of question that is sometimes asked by people who say, why use a commentary? Why hear a preacher? Just go straight to the Bible. Don't pay attention to any teachers or anybody else who's commented on that passage. Go right to the fountainhead. Well, the point is, is that God has worked in other people's lives besides ours. If we're arrogant enough to think that we're the only ones in whose life God has ever worked, and that we can do away with all that God has ever done in anybody else's life to instruct him uh, in the use of Scripture uh, in living day by day, and we can mine it all out from scratch on our own, we're going to suffer the penalties of that kind of arrogance. Because nobody has time enough to get it all from scratch on his own. Nobody is wise enough to do it all on his own. I was just in Germany a week ago, and uh, it was interesting. I was talking about lone wolf Christians. And as the translator translated, uh, he took their idiom. They don't talk about lone wolves over there, and he translated it, U-boat Christians, <laughs> submarine Christians, uh, those, who, those who are in the silent deep all on their own. That's kind of a neat idiom uh, that I hadn't heard before. And there are Christians who try to be submarine Christians, who try to go it alone. The trouble is that so often they end up torpedoing themselves. <laughs> now, um, in 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, I'm going to give you a list of verses without turning to them, something for you to look up when you go home. 2 Thessalonians 3, 7, and 9. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, 2 Thessalonians 3, 7, and 9. 2 Timothy 3, 10. 2 Timothy 3, 10. Philippians 4 and 9, which is a very powerful statement, as well as 1 Corinthians 11, 1, and this passage here in 3 John. And all of these passages, imitating someone else is not only encouraged, but it's commended strongly. Uh, Philippians 4 and 9, for example, Paul says, whatever you have seen and heard in me, do and the God of peace will be with you. Imitate what I've told you by, do what I've told you by precept, but also what you have seen in me do, what you have learned by example. And so imitate my example in serving Christ wherever I have faithfully served him. There will be imitation. There will be imitation in your life. All of us imitate someone. All of us imitate someone. The trouble is that our, is not that we don't imitate, but it's that we imitate unconsciously. We don't know who or what in whom we are imitating and bringing over into our lives. And so because we do these things unconsciously, we do them uncritically. That is, we do not determine what we shall imitate on the basis of whether it is good or evil in the sight of God according to his word. 
Here we are being called not simply to imitate, but we are being called to consciously, critically make decisions in, about what and whom we imitate. Now, most of what you learned as a child and through your teenage and perhaps even still today, you learn not through direct cognitive teaching, but you learn through imitation. Nobody gave you a book as a child to teach you how to walk. You learn to walk by imitation. Nobody as a child gave you your language first through language instruction. You learn your language by imitating your parents. Uh, it's amazing how German children find it no difficulty whatsoever to speak German. <laughs> and yet how I, an adult American, find it very difficult to speak German. Not so amazing after all. I am trying to get it through some other way than through imitation. They just did what they heard their parents doing. That's why it's interesting that all the German children grow up speaking German and all the American children grow up, speak, grow up speaking non-British. <laughs> now, uh, imitation is a large part of your life, far more than you realize. And so it is of your counselees. That's why John, in counseling Gaius here, calls him to a conscious decision, a critical decision as to whom and what in whom he will imitate. This is important for you, very important for you to realize as a counselor. I don't think we utilize one of the most powerful forces that there is in counseling, namely modeling, modeling. The imitation of a model, the imitation of someone who has got it together in the area in which your counselee has not got it together. Now, Let's say you're the pastor of a church and a woman comes in to you for counseling. She's got many problems. But along the way, one of the problems is she is totally disorganized. She does not know how to run a house. She's the kind of woman who takes a cake, puts it in the oven, and sits there and watches it until it's finished baking, not realizing she could do something else while it's in the oven, make it. Alright? She's that kind of a woman. You have to walk through the aisles in her house because things are piled and heaped everywhere and there are just three or four trails that you can get through. I've been in houses like that. And so have you. In fact, I've been in some preacher's wives' houses like that. At any rate, here is this woman, unorganized to the zenith. It takes a lot to get that far, but she's achieved it. Now, here you are, a pastor. Now, you could sit down and try to think through all the problems of organizing a home that a woman has to go through. But why should you? Why should you? 
And that probably, if you sat down and outlined and talked about them all and all that sort of thing and tried to tell her what to do and then worked with her, it would probably be a very long, laborious task for you to perform and you'd have to do a lot of head work in trying to think of all the things a woman has to think about during the day. Suppose you've got some women who are organized to the hilt in your church. Good housekeepers, wonderful cooks, got the family wash under control constantly, the husband's never screaming for a shirt. Everything's in shape, you know? You've got a number of women like that. Now, suppose you are a, a pastor who knows how to use the gifts of all of these people in the church. Well, if you're that kind of a pastor, you've already got a little card file. And in that card file, you dig through and you've got eight women who are people that you can use as models of how to organize, how to cook, how to keep a home, how to deal with children, whatever the problems may be, and you've got them categorized under those headings. And so you dig through and you find, here is a woman, and you call her up. Here's your counselee sitting here, and she confesses, I don't know even where to begin to get a house in order. It's chaos, you know. I don't know what to do. And you don't know what to do either. By the way, you're a pastor. What do you know about that? So uh, you say to her, hold everything. You find one of these women, you dial her on the phone, and you say, Mary, could you run through a week's activities in a home with somebody that I could send over to you to show her how to do it in a home? It may take you three or four weeks. In this case, uh, rather than one, as it normally does, but uh, uh, would you do that? Why, she says uh, yes, or maybe she says no, and you have to go on the next one. She may have some activity on. She can't do it this time. But these people have already volunteered to do this, and you've got them down under these particular categories. And let's say she or somebody says yes, so you send this woman over for three weeks. Now, you're free for three weeks from counseling while she's doing that. Somebody else is getting the blessing instead of you hugging it all. You're letting your other people get some blessing for, being, for ministering, you know, doing good to others. And you can use that time freely to help other people. And don't forget, this modeling is a very powerful way of doing something right. Uh, it's a powerful way of teaching. The New Testament constantly acknowledges and commends modeling those who are honoring Christ properly in their homes. And this woman won't just talk about housework. She'll talk about how to organize for Christ's honor and glory because you have taken enough time, which actually saves you time in the long run because you can use this kind of modeling over and over and over again through those people for whom you took time to do it once. You have actually taught her and a bunch of other people how to talk to people when they come in about how to do things for Christ's honor and glory and so on, and you have worked through with them how to do this. So a double whammy comes, not only from seeing what happens, but as they walk and talk through this thing in a Deuteronomy fashion, this woman is saying to the other one, uh, as they stand, as they sit, as they lie down, as they do all these things. And the actual milieu of, of doing in life, that's what Deuteronomy is saying, and that's the best way to teach according to Deuteronomy. She's saying, you see, this honors Christ when we do this, and here's how we uh, dishonor him if we don't do that, and here's how our families are pulled together, and we can do these things and be ready to have devotions and a good family relationship as we get this straight and so on. And she's, she's teaching 
uh, verbally as she's teaching by modeling along at the same time. This business of imitation, conscious, deliberate imitation or discipling method, because that's what discipling is. And by the way, I hear a lot about discipling today and I ask people, how do you do that discipling? They've got this discipling program and that discipling course and this discipling something else. And they tell me, well, we have people together for this little group that does so and so. That isn't discipling. Discipling is show and tell. That's what discipling is. If you look at the book of John and you look at Jesus' disciples, you see that discipling goes back. It's not just a Hebrew method over against a Greek method of packing heads with facts, which is the Greek method, but it's a method that somehow goes back to the interpersonal relationships of the Trinity itself. It has its roots in the father-son relationship. You remember Jesus said, and don't ask me to explain it any further than that. I can't understand it except that I see it. Jesus says, whatever I saw the Father doing, I do. Whatever I heard the Father saying, I speak. And then he goes on to say, if you do, and if you say the things that I do and I say, then you will be my disciples. In other words, he's saying, I as the Son have been the disciple of the Father, and now you must become my disciples. And when he talks about discipling, it is what the Father has been doing that I've seen him do that I do, and it's what the Father has been saying that I've heard him saying that I say. So the discipling method is the show and tell method, not merely the tell method. That's what makes discipling different. And you don't have a discipling group when you just have people sitting around talking. A discipling group involves, along with talk, it involves imitation, modeling. It involves how you implement truth in everyday living. Discipling in the Bible means walking in the truth, just as we've seen earlier in this letter. So, I want to urge you, along with much of the New Testament that we haven't had time to examine here, but along with it, and I've given you the verses, you can look those up, and they're just some that are powerful along this line. I want to encourage you to emphasize the use of imitation in teaching people how to live. You see, this is where the positive side comes in so powerfully. We have so much problem right there, too, and this is one of the keys to answering those problems. We are good at showing people where they're wrong, what they must put off, as the Bible puts it, what they must do away with, the old ways that have to go, the sins that have to be confessed, the repentance that needs to be done. We're pretty good at that. But then when it comes to teaching the biblical alternatives, the new ways that must be put on, that's where we fail so often and where the people fall flat on their faces and they find themselves right back in the old ways again six weeks later or six days later, and we have to get them confessed up again, and then they're back in the new ways, and they're trying the new ways, and the first thing you know, they're back again. It's a kiss-and-make-up syndrome with God. And that's what needs to be broken through. They need to learn how to put on the biblical ways, the new ways, the biblical alternatives. And those ways can often best be explained by showing, by getting a model of some Christian who is 
who has got it together, who is solving that problem, who is living that way that this person needs to live, and putting this person who needs that help together with him so that they can walk together and learn to walk in step. So imitate, he says, that which is good. The one who does good is from God. The one who does evil hasn't seen God. Probably he's contrasting Diotrephes with Demetrius here as examples to be followed and not followed. And what he is saying is a very strong charge against Diotrephes if that's what he's saying. He's saying there's no evidence in this man that he has seen God. He does evil, and when he is told about it and about the divisive nature of his actions, he doesn't repent, he doesn't hear, and I say he doesn't, he hasn't seen God. There are such things as unconverted ministers. And Diotrephes conceivably was one of those persons. At least that's what it would seem. Now look what he says about Demetrius. Demetrius has a good testimony from everyone. Oh, that's a tremendous statement about anybody. Uh, you know, uh, anybody here could say that about himself? I know you're humble, but uh, John said that's false humility. If you really think it, let's see. There's one. Okay. That's, a, that's only one person in the whole room who can say that about himself. Now, that's, that's interesting. But here was a man about whom John could say that. He has a good testimony from everyone. That doesn't mean that he's perfect. Uh, but it does mean that people would say uh, something good about him. If they had to testify about him. They'd speak positively about him. And from the truth itself. There is an interesting statement. If we could put truth on the witness stand and bring the best prosecuting attorney around here that we could find and say, okay, now, truth, we want to know about this fellow, Demetrius. Now, truth, uh, on the date of such and such and such and such and such, what was Demetrius doing then? You know all things, truth. Let's find out what your testimony to him is. He was praying to God and he was serving Jesus Christ on that date. Oh, I see. Well, how about such and such? Uh, how is he on that score? Comes off okay there, Truth would say. And we go down quizzing Truth on this on this uh, th this witness stand. Truth would have to keep giving a ringing affirmation about Demetrius. He's okay on each of those scores. Now, we also, says John, give our testimony to him, and you know that our testimony is true. So what we've got here is more than one witness. John's bringing several witnesses into the picture because all things are to be established according to biblical principle by two or three witnesses. Now he goes on to say, after personifying truth and getting truth to speak about Demetrius, he goes on now to the conclusion. He says, I had much to write to you. But I don't want to do so with pen and ink. Rather, I hope to see you as soon 
as possible, and we shall talk face to face. I want to stop with his coming now and go back. John says, I'm coming to do two things. I'm coming to help you out and to fill in all the gaps that this letter can't fill in, to encourage you in your work, to deal with any problems you have. I so long to talk to you about all the things I wanted to say to you that a piece of papyrus uh, quickly sent off with Demetrius who's on his way uh, could never begin to cover and uh, things that we couldn't really talk about by letter anyway because letter is so impersonal and I can't get the feedback from you and I can't respond to your questions properly and all the rest of it. I just long to be with you and talk to you face to face or literally mouth to mouth as it is in the original. But also there was a second purpose why he was going. Go back again. I skipped this because I wanted to pull it all together here. In verse 10, he says, For that reason, when I come, not if I come, but when I come, to be translated, I shall remember everything that he has done. Now, in Hosea 8, 13, 9, 9, Jeremiah 15, 15, and all through the Old Testament and so on, remembering something means the same as judgment. I haven't time to go into those passages. You can look them up. But it means I won't forget. And I'm going to bring up all these things. I'm going to deal with all these things. Remembering doesn't just mean uh, I'm going to keep them in my head. But all the stuff that's in my head that needs to be dealt with without exception, is going to be poured out and it's going to be dealt with. This matter is going to be resolved once and for all, finally and ultimately. In other words, the judgment will fall. Just as it did when the earth opened up, it fell. Just as it did when the sons of Levi took their swords and turned them into blood, the judgment fell. So it will come when the apostolic authority of the Apostle John walks into that church and Diotrephes is dealt with definitively because he refused to heed the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ invested in that Apostle who wrote to him and tried to bring him to repentance and to uh, conversion if necessary. The judgment of God will fall. I have talked about hard things here these days. We need to hear them in our day. The church has been a sloppy, agape church. It has been a kind of amorphous club in so many places. I know there are good exceptions. And I thank God for every one of them. But I'm talking about the church in general. And not the liberal church. The evangelical Bible-believing church has been so lax. And much of the problem goes back to those who ought to be asserting their authority. They have that authority. God will hold them responsible for using that authority. And he will say, why 
did you let the people sin? Why did you let them go on to this great evil? Why did you let the congregation of God be divided? Because there was no discipline. There was no way of winning them back and reclaiming them, and if they ultimately refused, removing them from the midst so that that cancer couldn't grow in your midst and divide and destroy. My great fear for the evangelical movement today is that with all the blessing of God that we have received, we have not drawn the line between ourselves and the world by church discipline. And I believe that God who has given us so much and we who have responded so lamely are likely to feel that judgment if we don't get on the stick. That's why I'm stressing this. Not because hardness is what I like to talk about. I'd much rather, as Jude said when he wrote his letter, talk about our common salvation. That's wonderful. Sit down, put our feet up, talk about all the wonderful things that we know together in Christ and all the things that we say amen and yes and we all nod our heads and that's great. But there came a time when Jude, who was sitting down to write that way, had to crumple up his piece of papyrus, no matter how valuable it might have been in those days, and it was valuable, and chuck it and take a new piece out and write about a problem that had to be faced and could not be ignored. And I believe that this day and age, this is part of the problem that must be faced and dare not be ignored any longer. So, let's end on a positive note. He says, I hope to see you. Peace be to you, the friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. That was a neat device. Greet the friends by name. That was also used in letters of that day, uh, which meant greet them individually, greet them uh, personally. Uh, There wasn't any room on this piece of papyrus to put all the names like Paul did in Romans 16, where everybody is mentioned and some little trait is mentioned about most of them. The people who are with you in some kind of uh, general fashion, but you, you, you tell them that I really care about each one of them individually. And in my name, you know I know them all, and you know I could say something about them all. There's, there's room to do it here. But in my name, you do it for me, Gaius. So you see, Gaius wasn't alone. There were some friends gathered around Gaius. Some other people who had been chucked or who were on the verge of being chucked out of the church. Greet those friends by name. Uh, Diotrephes didn't care about these people. Diotrephes didn't care about people in general. Diotrephes used the church to promote himself. That's what he cared about himself. But here were the people that John cared about. And he does not forget to mention them while writing to Gaius. He cares about Gaius and he cares about the friends who are surrounding Gaius in that church or out of it or whatever condition they may have been in. We don't know all the facts. And so he is concerned about promoting the truth and promoting the fellowship of the saints and strengthening that fellowship. Even in this short note, that consciousness of the need of others comes to the fore again and again. It's not just the problem, but it's the church about which he cares, for which he knows that Jesus Christ died. So, what about this matter? We're always saying, We want a New Testament church. We've got one. 
It was a divided church. It was a church full of heresy. The New Testament church was a church in which authority was rejected. It was a church in which personality differences arose. It was a church in which there was competition, as John showed this morning, between heroes that were followed. It was a church in which people were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. It was a church in which, you just name it, you want a New Testament church? Man, I'll tell you, I go to one. <laughs> Every sin that's in the New Testament's in my church. I got a New Testament church that I attend. I've never seen anything but New Testament churches. Let's stop this nonsense about I want a New Testament church. Same church there that we see today and the same problems there and so the same solutions. What we want is New Testament apostles today. People who act in the right way and follow the New Testament teaching in the right way and who bring the New Testament solutions today. That's what we want. Not a New Testament church. Let's get beyond the New Testament church if we can. Okay, I think we better quit here. And uh, we'll take up Q&A tomorrow. All the Q&A you want, it's all yours tomorrow. Every bit of it. <laughs>